So in a moment of complete and sheer panic, we went out, bought meters and meters of Ethernet cables and physically stripped those cables and set up Ethernet connections for all. Welcome to Worth, a podcast where my brother Ethan and I highlight the unique stories of young people in the tech world. We'll talk with them about their backgrounds, current work, books that have profoundly affected their lives, and a lot more to understand how they think and the impact they want to make. This is the podcast that we wanted to listen to, but it didn't exist, so we made it ourselves. Think Humans of New York, but for young people shaping the tech ecosystem. To check out episode transcripts and join our mailing list, please visit worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. We'll link in the show notes. Let's begin. Today, I'm joined by Pratik Swain, recent Princeton graduate and the 23-year-old co-founder of Green Tiger, an app that allows people in India to trade U.S. stocks commission-free. After being accepted into Y Combinator's summer 2019 batch and being dubbed Robinhood for India, we caught up with Pratik and talked about some of the best advice he got during his time at YC and the challenges of starting a fintech company. Pratik has a deeply technical and entrepreneurial background. He started his first company when he was just in high school and more recently launched Make Ventures Princeton, the school's first startup incubator. After interning at Microsoft his junior summer, Pratik turned down a return offer from one of the top tech companies in the world to go build his own. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to share your story with our listeners and learn more about what you're building at Green Tiger. Thank you so much for having me, Asher. So first off, let's talk a little bit about what you were up to in high school. You have a pretty deep technical and entrepreneurial background. And if I'm not mistaken, Green Tiger is not the first company you founded. Can you tell us (laughs) a little bit about the first company that you ever started? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So all the way back to high school, yeah. So uh, I think I got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug somewhere in between sophomore and junior of high school. So one of my friends and I, we were, you know, freelance web designing for, this was back when I was uh, still in New Delhi, India, you know, I went to high school there and I grew up there. So we were freelance web designing for American clients, making money off the arbitrage. We were cheaper than American contractors and, you know, about had the same skill set and it was nice pocket money for us. And while doing that, we sort of like, you know, really built out our skills and, in the process, we sort of figured why not like, you know, start building out, uh, you know, just experiment around with apps and things like that for ourselves. So, you know, we would take all our meetings at coffee shops with local clients. And uh, my, my partner then, Abhishek and I, we had very different music tastes. I was a big rock and roll metal fan and he was a big hip hop fan. And I remember they were playing like, I want to say Justin Bieber at this uh, Starbucks we were at. And we had this huge debate about, you know, how the music at this cafe was like not at all attuned to what people wanted to listen to. And we should have had the choice. And I was like, you know, all for, you know, Led Zeppelin and uh, Arctic Monkeys. And he was all for Kanye. And we were like, you know, we should put it to a vote. And that's how like the idea for our first uh, product came. So we called it Shuffle. And the idea was that if you can control the music you listen to in your personal space, you should have some amount of say in the music you listen to in public spaces as well. So it was like, you know, not the most pressing problem, but we were, mind you, just like 14 or 15 year olds thinking this is the coolest thing ever. Like, you know, you walk into a cafe, you, you know, you most of the time have free Wi-Fi. So what if you just like got access to this public playlist where, you know, you could choose songs, you could see what songs are playing, upload songs you liked, download songs you didn't like, stuff like that. Anyway, long story short, we built out the product, we piloted it at this like huge carnival 
And to a surprise, like, you know, we got like more than 4,000 users in like a week. We had like a ton of engagement, people sharing it on Facebook. And that's when we thought maybe, you know, we could go somewhere with this. And so we kind of applied to this local incubator program called InvestorPad, had an office for the summer, felt like the coolest thing. We were just like, you know, high schoolers, had an office. We're going to cafes, selling them a subscription. Ended up partnering with, uh, so we ended up like actually having a meeting with uh, Ghana.com, just kind of like the Spotify of India. And the founder was like super impressed that we, we were just like these two youngsters trying to build this out, which was very counterintuitive to what you would think, you know, as a, as a high schooler going into these business meetings. But, you know, he offered us a first partnership and sort of took it from there. And then eventually that fell off because of legal reasons. But I think that was like my first experience with entrepreneurship. And that's kind of like when I realized that, yeah, this is, this is kind of what I want to do. It's super exciting and it makes you learn a lot. That is a really interesting idea. So would it be fair to say that this, this company, Shuffle, was built on the idea of crowdsourcing opinion for what music to play in a public space? Absolutely. That's awesome. I'm honestly imagining this in the context of going out to a bar uh, and casting your vote to say, like, this is the song I want to hear the DJ play next, which I honestly would pay money to, to be able to do. Yeah, we, we weren't thinking about bars then because we hadn't been, we weren't legal enough to go to bars. But now that I think about it, that would be, <laughs> no, that would be a great use case. You know, if someone else is trying to build it out, that would, that would be phenomenal. Me too. <laughs> I mean, I'd for sure use it. So from this kind of your first initial experience as a founder, were there any takeaways for you about what it takes to build a successful product or a successful company? You know, I think... The key takeaway for me was that startups seem really daunting, but when you get into it and you break it down into tasks, a lot of things are are doable. I, I often felt like that was a different skill set that was required to achieve things like, you know, what is sales? What is business development? What is, you know, like marketing? And like, and there is, to a great extent, a lot of specialty and expertise that goes into these fields. And if you have ability to hire professionals in that, you absolutely should. But Starting out as a founder, you can absolutely do most of these things yourselves and learn along the process. And that's actually going to be better down the line for you. It seemed like a lot more realistic to me just because we were, you know, just like messing around in high school doing this thing. And uh, the other thing was I definitely got a sense of excitement out of working with this project. You know, it's something you can call your own. You can shape how it's going to come out. And I think that was the sort of feeling of exhilaration that I wanted to have again. That's really cool, man. And we are going to talk a little bit later in the episode just about the different hats that you wear with Green Tiger, your current company. But that's awesome that that was kind of your intro to building companies. So switching gears a bit here, for those that do not know, in high school, Pratik founded Hack India, which was at the time India's largest student-run hackathon. And then in college, went on to launch Make Ventures Princeton, which was the school's first startup incubator. What was your experience like launching those programs and building those communities, Pratik? <laughs> so Hack India happened completely by chance. One of my friends, Raghav, he approached me. He's like, hey, do you want to organize a hackathon? And this was the summer between high school and college, actually. And, you know, we didn't have much to do. I was like, sure, why not? You know, this sounds great. And in short, the experience was, I'm not sure what's the right word to, what's the right word to encapsulate it, but it was, uh, it was quite a rollercoaster journey. We didn't have a venue or sponsorship. Most of the money or anything up until maybe like a week or two before the event was actually going to happen. And that was mostly because no one was, no, I'm, I'm serious. No one was willing to like trust like, again, two 17 year olds to run this huge hackathon. 
it shouldn't have worked out. We set up a distributed leadership team across the country and we would communicate and collaborate over Skype. We had spoken to a couple of vendors and then, you know, we changed tactics a month ago. Meanwhile, we had been doing really well on the Facebook marketing front. We had a ton of applications, 10,000 plus applications. And then we accepted about 1,000 or 1,200 of them. We didn't have money to give people for travel stipends, but people were traveling from all over the country on their own dime. So at some point we were like, shit, we need to make this happen. And we set up a volunteer program like a few days before the hackathon. I want to say it was a great success. Uh, we got a lot of media attention for us, but honestly, there were a lot of things we messed up as well. One of the funniest stories is that the night before the hackathon, we, so we finalized a venue. We went to Bangalore where we organized it a week before this was to happen to, you know, finalize sponsorships and things like that. Uh, the night before the hackathon was about to happen, we realized that the internet capability of the location wasn't 400 Mbps, but it was 40 Mbps. So in a moment of complete and sheer panic, we went out, bought meters and meters of ethernet cables and physically stripped those cables and set up ethernet connections for all 800 people who were going to show up. (laughs) We had to to stay up the whole night. It was us and we had about 20 volunteers who had shown up the night before. And this was the experience. Just when we thought everything was going to go great, we were like, oh shit, this last thing. But uh, in the process, one of the things we realized was uh, it's super important to plan for the unexpected. Of course, that's something you should keep in mind. But that was definitely like a great organizational experience in, in learning how to take care of these things. MVP, so Make Punches Princeton was a completely different story. So after I came to Princeton, I realized I wanted to pursue entrepreneurship in some meaningful way. I joined the Entrepreneurship Club. I was part of the Hack Princeton organizing team, et cetera, et cetera. But I sort of realized that a lot of activities in entrepreneurship in college were based around organizing events as opposed to actually building products. And I was frustrated with that because I always thought of college as a time where I'd find my co-founders and build something and take it off from there. But there was really no avenue to pursue that. So that's sort of what led me to start MVP. And I think one of the things we realized super early on was that culture would be extremely important on that front. We, we identified three problems, basically. First, people didn't know what to work on. Second, even if they didn't know what to work on, they didn't know who to work with. And third, even if you know they had cleared these two big barriers and they knew who to work with and they knew what to work on, there was just no way to stay committed. Because, you know, as you would know, Asher, like an average Princeton student is doing like five things at once and academics is stressful enough as it is. So if you're not getting a grade for it, then you're really not incentivized to keep pushing. So I had faced this problem personally, and that's how I wanted to structure something where people would be incentivized to do this. Of course, we couldn't make it an official class, but taking back from my experiences from Hack India and even Shuffle, even when things were going wrong, people were excited because we were having fun, you know, just shooting the shit, goofing around. So if you could build a strong sense of community amongst people and they enjoyed hanging out together, then magic would happen. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that we were pretty successful. Our first year we ended up having six startups come out of MVP, which tripled the amount of startups that come out of Princeton each year. And three of them are doing extremely well even now. One of them has a six-figure revenue run rate. One of them has been doing these bunch of modern Menendian reusable fashion lines. They've partnered with the Princeton Art Museum. They've had their own fashion shows, pop-up events. They're, They're crushing it. And the last one, these two founders that we took in and we helped them build, they didn't pursue the original idea, but now they have this completely new company. They've raised angel investments from the co-founder of Jet and a bunch of others. So, you know, this idea was to create a community. And I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that 
it's still paying dividends even now. Absolutely. And I guess two things really stick out to me from what you just said. Firstly, this image in my head of you and Abhishek carrying in meters and meters of Ethernet cables uh, into this venue prior to the day of Hack India. I'm honestly curious, did anyone complain about the speed of the internet or their connection the day of the event? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the next day, internet went down. Our Ethernet cable solution did not last for very long. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of blowback we got at the Facebook group, et cetera, about you know, internet being down. And as you can imagine, like, how are you supposed to build something when you have no internet? But thankfully, we were able to resolve it in a couple of hours. So there were some very stressful four or five hours, but then things sort of like uh, placated after that. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it definitely speaks to your ability just to, uh, to adjust on the fly. So with respect to MVP, I really am curious. Obviously, Princeton is a very strong school. I'm curious why and maybe the lack of a Make Ventures Princeton or a program like this prior to you coming in and creating it could have contributed to this. But I feel like a school like Harvard or Stanford is always talked about in the context of where founders come from and really just being a breeding ground for young, successful entrepreneurs. But I feel like Princeton is talked about less in that discussion. Do you have any thoughts or ideas about why Princeton may be perceived as slightly less entrepreneurial than schools like that? Oh, so many thoughts on that. Absolutely. This is like what I spent half of college thinking about. But one of the things you notice, and I'm sure you can comment on this as well, is that Princeton is a very finance-heavy school. You know, I would say that applies to most Northeastern schools, especially like the Ivy Leagues. But Princeton especially, so you see a lot of your peers and colleagues aspiring towards, you know, career in Wall Street or consulting and things like that. So there, there are very, these very well-defined paths that is very hard to deviate from. I think. So when you come in as a freshman and you're trying to figure out what to do, it's much easier to follow these like well-structured paths that have this guaranteed like return and are, are very safe. One of the other things that I've touched upon a little bit is that I generally think that our course load at Princeton is a lot heavier and that provides us much less free time to ourselves to pursue things outside of our extracurriculars and academics. And I think that's one of the other big reasons why it's so hard to uh, have a lot more startups come out of Princeton, mostly because these things happen not in the classroom, but outside the classroom, right? Like these things need free time to pursue. And so I think that's another one of the bigger issues. And then lastly, I think historically Harvard and Stanford and other universities have been, the administration has been a lot more adept at, you know, embracing change in terms of supporting and fostering entrepreneurship, whereas Princeton. So one of one of our guest speakers at MVP was uh, one of our mentors and advisors is this person called Tim Huang. He's the founder of Fiscal Note, which is, you know, uh, a billion dollar company now. And he was telling me that back in the day when he was a freshman, Princeton actively prohibited students from pursuing startups. Like they made life as difficult as they could. Like you couldn't take a leave of absence. You couldn't get funding. There were just like a lot of red tape and bureaucracy that you had to go through. So there were active obstacles set up by the university, not because they were anti-entrepreneurship, but because it was just a legacy of existing structures, right? And so I think that's one of the things which to Princeton's credit, they have changed rapidly over the last few years. They set up, you know, the Keller Center, the eLab Incubator. They've set up a fund. They're trying to do a lot on that front. And maybe me getting accepted was part of that push as well, because I don't think I had the grades for Princeton. So <laughs> <maybe shuffle laughs> but uh, 
but certainly I think these these things you know take time and I think we are on that path also just like statistically speaking since we have a much smaller student body it is uh, you know we just don't have the numbers interesting so kind of following along this thread of safer careers let's fast forward to the summer of 2018 so you're in between your junior and senior years of college you're working at Microsoft alongside your future co-founder Tyler what did they have you guys working on that summer and how did you guys come up with the idea for what would later become the company that you're currently working on? Yeah, great question. So uh, Tyler and I actually knew each other from sophomore year of college when we met at Hackbrinson. We were both finalists and Tyler ended up winning and I didn't. So, you know, we became friends and then we bumped into each other at different hackathons. And then as luck would have it, our desks were signed next to each other at Microsoft. But we were working on different products. Uh, we were both in this cloud and AI division working on Dynamics 365, which is their CRM product. Uh, this is what Satya Nadella used to lead back in the day, by the way. So, you know, I was working on mixed reality, which is Microsoft's, if you've uh, heard or seen the HoloLens, which is kind of like their AR headset, but which you can interact with. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so my project was basically building out their uh, dynamics for field service for mixed reality. So I had, I had a super great time. I was work, you know, I had a HoloLens headset uh, at my desk. I was just playing around with that, you know, sort of building out this entire application for them. It was more like a futuristic long-term project. And Tyler was working more on the core competencies of the CRM itself. So we were in different teams, but, you know, I think Microsoft uh, was a great time, but we both knew we didn't want to go back. We both had, uh, I think, Microsoft was the safe choice and we both were a lot more ambitious and had a lot more desire to build something bigger and not just be an enterprise software for large corporations as we used to joke around. So it all started out by just hanging out to jam together. Like we both played the guitar. Tyler's a better guitarist than me, but you know, we were just hanging around. And then one thing led to another, then we decided to collaborate on some side projects. And I'm more than happy to talk about how Green Tiger came along, but you know, there was this long story. I was basically ranting to him about our problems uh, that I faced, and that sort of led to like us starting to work on it. Very interesting. So bringing us to present day here, uh, Pratik, you did mention this, but you're, you and Tyler are currently working on Green Tiger. Uh, and it really does blow me away that this type of an app didn't exist prior to this, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Green Tiger does and how it improves upon... <laughs> existing options available to folks in India? Yeah, absolutely. So Green Tiger is basically, you know, we're trying to be Robin Hood for India. The idea is that we want to enable any Indian investor with a smartphone and an internet connection to be able to sign up, create an account, and be able to trade US stocks for zero commission instantly. And so, you know, the idea is that we don't want to charge any fees. We don't have a minimum balance, service fees, etc. And we want to make it easier and more accessible to be able to invest in the U.S. market. So the reason we decided to pursue this goes all the way back to high school again. So I was actually one of the first people to sign up for Robinhood back when they launched. And, you know, I was accepted off the waitlist pretty soon, but I couldn't create an account up until two years ago when I finally got my social security number, which is because I came to the U.S. to pursue my undergrad. And uh, once, you know, once I had my account, I, I love trading and I, I still do. And, you know, Tala has a similar story, but I realized that, you know, most people in India don't have that opportunity to. So right now there's no clear way to be able to invest in U.S. equities from India. In fact, most people don't even know that it is legal to do that. 
And so to go back, once we started, you know, once I was trading, I realized I should probably start investing like my parents' money in the US market as well, just because from a return perspective, it just makes a ton of more sense. Because if you look at the returns of the up, so the Indian equivalent of S&P 500 is called Nifty 500. And that has had a return of like about 14.56% over the last decade, as compared to like 12.5% for the S&P 500 over the last decade. However, when you take into account the rupee depreciation, then the S&P 500 would have returned like 17.8% or so for an average Indian investor. So it just makes a ton of sense as an individual to be able to invest in the U.S. market because you're hedging against the currency and also getting way better returns with like stocks like, you know, your FANG stocks and all these other like, you know, skyrocketing stocks that you can create a basket of portfolio with. And so that was basically my thinking. I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll create an account for my mom and I'll trade my parents' money off of that. You know, I think that's pretty interesting. I'm sort of interested in this financial space. And so I called up all these Indian brokers, right? Like all your traditional old school brokers. And most of them didn't support this. And the ones who did, there were like two of these like 100-year-old banks that did. They literally told us to come to their branch, physically visit them, open a bank account with them first, then open a brokerage account with them, and then pay them to be able to trade US equities. And I was just like, okay, there has to be a better way than that. So I looked up at all the American brokers. I was like, all right, you know what? Maybe one of these other American brokers supports it. And turns out there were like only two or three, which was Charles Schwab and TD Ameritrade and Interactive Brokers. And they either had extremely high minimum deposits, like $10,000, which is, you know, unaffordable for most retail investors, even in the U.S., or like extremely high commission. Like, you know, if you're paying $7 per trade, then are you really going to be making money off these? Things, things have changed now recently with your commission, but, you know, the high minimum deposit still stands. So around then, like that's when, you know, I was, I was basically ranting about this to Tyler that, you know, it's so hard to do this. Why can't that be like, why, when is Robinhood going to launch in India? Why can't we do this? And he was just like, why don't we build this? And I was like, I didn't think about that. That's that's a good idea. Maybe we should we should look into it. And so that's really how Green Tiger started. That's fascinating. And I really do see this not just, you know, as an app for young people, but I'm thinking through the user experience of someone your parents' age. So they're thinking, okay, my son has told me that it's more lucrative and financially intelligent to invest in US equities. I'm gonna now go to a bank, but suddenly you're posed with all this paperwork and all this red tape to break through just to invest your money. So I am seeing Green Tiger as a huge improvement just with respect to the customer experience, not just for young people, but really for people, uh, the generation before us. Yeah, that's what we hope for too. So we're definitely starting out with like, uh, you know, tier one city millennial white collar workers. Those are people who are more technology savvy, which is going to be like a lot because, you know, India is a smartphone dominated market as it is. But I think the interesting differentiation is that you know, when Robinhood came into the U.S. market, there were already a lot of existing options for people to be able to trade U.S. equities, whereas in India, there aren't any. So it definitely can have a much wider appeal. Yeah, I mean, that's really admirable that you guys are bringing a product like that to what sounds like kind of an underserved market uh, just within this sector. So your company was accepted early decision into arguably the strongest startup accelerator in the world in Y Combinator. What played into your and Tyler's decision to apply and what did that process look like for you guys? Uh, yeah, so this was, you know, a senior fall when we had just finished our internships at Microsoft. We returned back to 
uh, university. So Tyler went to Dartmouth, I was at Princeton, so we were working remotely together. And we both thought that it was too early to apply, but uh, Tyler was like open to the idea of applying. I definitely wanted to keep working on something because I was dead set that I wanted to like, you know, start something. I was passionate about this idea and I knew that this was the best time to pursue it. So, but I also felt like it was too early. We had a mentor, one of his founders I knew, Thompson, he had, a, you know, he had a very successful startup that had gone out of YC a few years ago. He had raised a bunch of money from top investors and then sold to Square eventually. Uh, like, you know, basically Jack Dorsey convinced him to sell. He was an exec at Square for a while. And he had actually recently left Square and he was working on his next project. So, the, you know, in between uh, going back to school and wrapping up my internship in Seattle, I went to SF just to, you know, sort of meet a bunch of people. And Thompson was one of the people I met. Like, you know, I'd always been taking advice from him. I'd been very inspired by him. And he sat me down and for basically half an hour, like screamed at me about why I would be stupid to not pursue this. And he was just like, I don't even know what the product is, but I would invest in you right now, just based on who you are. I was like, and that was like wow. a big deal, you know, like that was, that was just a big deal for us. And I, I have to credit Thompson for like at least convincing me to like really pushing forward with it. And then I didn't know that early decision existed. It was actually Thompson who sent us an email with the blog post. And it sort of just seemed like the stars are aligning, you know, like we had been working on this. We had been getting all this great feedback. We were excited to do this. We were just about to graduate. And then YC comes out with this program called Early Decision, which is, you know, basically targeting people in our position to be able to get accepted early on so that they can pursue this right after graduation. And I was like, well, shit, okay, this is sort of like the universe calling to us, you know, like we, this is now or never. <laughs> so that's, that's basically what like, we were just like, all right, let's, let's go for it. So we just, you know, we submitted an application and the next thing we knew we had an interview and then uh, this was right during his midterms. I remember we were trying to like mock interview, like mock uh, prep with a bunch of like ex-founders and stuff. And it was just like a whole mess because we had to schedule around Tyler's midterms. And then there was this like whole other saga that was going on, but things worked out in the end. So, you know, can't be happier. So at YC, you guys obviously had access, not just to all these former operators, and really intelligent former founders, but also other startups that are going through the same process, you are the same struggle. Can you speak to some of the more memorable advice you received there, whether it be from the YC team or even from other founders? Absolutely. So I think there are a couple of like very strong takeaways that uh, I took from YC that, I've, that we've tried to internalize. One of them is, you know, it's just like this thought experiment that happened, which was, you know, one of our partners basically explained to us how our success is completely dependent upon us. Like there are infinite universes with infinite possibilities, right? And we're living in a universe where like Microsoft and Google, like the founders, basically they made every decision that they could correctly. Like they went through this like maze of decisions and they hit the jackpot in the sense like they took every decision correctly, which ended up, you know, helping them create these trillion dollar companies. And that's not to be fatalistic, but that's just saying that you can exist in this reality where every decision you take can be like the right decision to take. And you can end up creating like the next trillion dollar opportunity as well. And it was just like this way of thinking that, you know, it's your success does not depend on like external factors, but it very much depends on you. 
And it was a little counterintuitive, at least for me, to think about it those ways, because most of the time, you know, you, you sort of are thinking, oh, yeah, like my success depends on, you know, our employees, the product, the customers, like, you know, the investors, like all these other things, which may or may not be under my control. That's a little more like philosophical, but that was very important to learn. The second was definitely about mental health and like persevering. So I think one of the things you realize, like when you start a company or you go through this process is it's very it's a very lonely process, you know, like you're, you're alone, like, you know, you're out there in this place with your co-founder and it's, it's, it's a very like isolating feeling. Right. And then you can always, you can be doubting yourself. You can be doubting everything you can get in your own head. And one of the things to remember is that what, why you started doing this and the fact that this is all in your head and you can be in charge of that. So it's all, it sounds crazy, but like one of the things that really struck me is like you're in control of your own destiny. So you can go out and make things happen. That was definitely one of the main takeaways. I think I was extremely inspired by my batchmates because so one of the core benefits of YC is that just because you're surrounded by some of the smartest people with these insane companies who are working extremely hard, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to do well, to keep up. And it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in life. Like so far, like YC was definitely the hardest thing we've done, but extraordinary things happen like during the time in the batch because of like how inspired you are by the people you're surrounded by and just having that sense of camaraderie and community to like rely on you know get through problems together I think that was it was just like these small instances and those conversations where like you know every time you have a problem you ask for feedback from your fellow founders and they help you come up with like a lot of solutions there are a lot of people have different expertise and so you know it's like these intangible like very small things that add up to make a bigger whole. Gotcha. And I can see how that type of an environment would really foster, um, I guess, just a place where founders can really thrive and come out of it with a really strong business that makes sense. Uh, so I do want to talk a little bit more about the current day-to-day of the business for you guys. Uh, and obviously, there's so many different hats that early stage founders need to wear. But how do you and Tyler think about the division of responsibilities between you two? And more broadly, how do you figure out how you should be spending your time on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Tyler and I are both technical founders. We both, you know, did software, studied CS, but I have no shame in admitting that Tyler's 10x the engineer I am. So we have a very clean uh, division of responsibilities. Tyler is in charge of engineering. He leads our engineering efforts. And I try to take care of everything else, which is legal, business, partnerships, uh, you know, growth, etc. And then we both together collaborate on product. So we, we basically take all product decisions together in terms of what are the features we want to build? How does that look like in terms of UI, UX? What are the engineering decisions? So that's, that's how we sort of set up work day to day. But realistically, we sort of keep each other in the loop. And, you know, on whatever decision we think is big enough, we both are involved. Interesting. So at, the, at this point in the process, is it just you two? I can absolutely see how that could, you know, feel lonely or isolating at times. But have you guys made a hire yet? Are you guys looking to hire? Or at what point do you think that would make sense for you guys? Yeah, so we have a couple of employees in New York now. We just closed that uh, are going to be helping us with setting up a brokerage since we are a trading company. But in terms of the product and engineering, like in terms of the parent company, it's just us two right now. Gotcha. So are there things that you've already found to be successful or unsuccessful in building the product so far? Are there things that you've run into with Green Tiger that have really caught you by surprise or maybe taught you something about just the process of launching a startup in general? Uh, you know, I can 
go on complaining about fintech for hours in this like you know, just <laughs> there, there's there's pros and cons to operating in a highly regulated industry the pros are that there's a good there's strong defensibility and a high barrier to entry the con is that there's a high barrier to entry and there's a lot of legal hassles that you have to go through at half the time i feel like my job is just to be like talking to lawyers like and actually i can tell you any what's worse than talking to one lawyer on a call is talking to three different lawyers from three different firms <laughs> we just have <laughs> but uh but that being said i think yeah so you know in terms of like day-to-day execution practices we've i what has been super helpful for me is to so just keeping a notebook and like putting down all the tasks you have to do each day, like breaking them down into super small tasks, because I think it's extremely easy to feel overwhelmed with everything that you have to do. And what that often also leads to is just because there's just constantly this sense of like, you know, having to achieve 80 things that a lot of things fall off your radar. And so I think like keeping this out of a checklist has been extremely beneficial in terms of my productivity. Um, outside of that, we, you know, like just daily check-ins and stand-ups are super helpful in terms of like making sure we're on track for our broader goals. So those have been the more pragmatic things that we have done that has like really helped us. Absolutely. And that makes sense. Yeah. Just staying organized and things like that. I can see how that would really help you guys to be productive, uh, really to make positive growth each day. So I guess more broadly, what is on the horizon for Green Tiger in both the near term and the long term? Do you guys plan to raise more money or make hires? Are you more focused on building the product? What's, I guess, what's next for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, we're basically in the process of setting up a broker-dealer, getting licensed through FINRA as a brokerage in the U.S. so that we can go and uh, not only solicit clients, but also be able to generate revenue off of that. So right now, we're solely focused on building product, hiring, YC had this internal challenge that we joke about, which is called the Series A challenge, which is essentially, can you try to defer hiring until your Series A? And so we've taken it upon ourselves right now to do that, just to see how much we can push ourselves. But, you know, if a great candidate comes across, we're definitely open to hiring. But right now we're focused on product. Like I said, we want to start with this self-executed trading model, which is, you know, allowing people to trade and invest in U.S. stocks uh, self-executed over here means that we're not advising them. They decide what stocks they pick. And so after that, we want to definitely launch some sort of robo-advisory sort of model where, because India is predominantly a mutual fund dominated market, but the biggest barrier is financial literacy. So to you know be able to improve at top of the funnel and also be able to provide access to better financial options to a larger subset of population, we want to help create products where people don't have to actively think about what they're trading on but just invest money with us and then we are able to generate returns for them in, in, in the US market system. You know, just uh, and a couple of products around that essentially. So that's on our roadmap for, you know, I think the next year or two. So you did mention this kind of Series A challenge where you're trying to defer hiring as much as possible until you are able to raise that subsequent round. And I think, feel like there are two things that really come into play here. Um, firstly, when do you guys hope to potentially raise a Series A? And secondly, how, how do you guys plan to generate revenue for this business? You know, obviously you're offering this great commission-free trading service. Um, how do you plan to sustain the business long-term and really just make money? Of course. Uh, so uh, when do we plan to raise a Series A? No idea. If you know any investor who wants to give us a term sheet, let me know. But, uh, <laughs> but it's basically is more contingent on growth. When we feel like we have 
are enough customers and you know enough consumers that are using our service and we feel overwhelmed and we need to like you know we feel like we have built something that people truly want then i think is the right time when we would be like you know we'd be thinking about like raising a next round because i think that's like you need to first like have something that is truly desired by the market before you can go out and build around that and in terms of the business model that you asked so right now we're following uh, the traditional zero commission model which is essentially we make money through three ways first is payment from autoflow second is securitized asset lending and third is interest on uninvested assets in layman terms essentially uh, the clearing houses they have a pretty standard model where as a broker dealer when you integrate with them uh, they provide so their shares that are bought and sold by your customers is then used as liquidity for institutions for their trades and then you get some revenue off them so you're making money off the b2b side and interest in uninvested assets in simple terms is essentially you know at any given point of time your customer doesn't have their entire like deposit invested in shares and so whatever is not invested earns interest and that interest goes to you and so that's yeah so that's what we start with that's what basically robin had followed but really what we want to focus on is having a subscription model down the line and after that like this more advisory service where we'll be charging some sort of management fee or so interesting so just to be i guess providing financial advice and hopefully expertise to folks in india looking to invest their money correct so more 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 robo advisory but for indians in the us market gotcha well i'll be really excited for one to follow that progress and just see what you guys are coming up with Moving into our final section here, I'd like to ask you a couple quick questions, some fun facts, if you will. Are you ready, Pratik? <laughs> sure, let's go for it. So if you could have expertise on or be launching a startup in any one space today, what would it be and why? With the mm. caveat that you cannot choose Green Tiger. Mm. Uh, space exploration, for sure, like space settlements. So back in high school, I used to, oh, like space settlements or urban cities. I, that's that's a really tough one, but I, I I'm so fascinated by this idea of smart cities and urban planning and creating more sustainable solutions for the future of humanity. Like if you look at the research, uh, you know, especially in developing countries, new cities generate a ton of employment, help get people out of the cyclical poverty. Like it's 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 all about economic upliftment, and so I would love to be able to create like smart cities and then taking it one step further, creating smart cities in space. That would that's that's the future, and I would love to do that. That's crazy. I uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about San Francisco as it falls into one of those buckets. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are some books or podcasts that have really changed the way that you think about the world? Do you have any favorites that really stand out? Ah, uh, for sure. So, first and foremost, I I would be remiss if I don't mention Paul Graham's essays, so PG's essays, which initially got me interested in Y Combinator. I think. Crystal clear thinking, you know, I love all of his advice. Just consume everything that he has. It's it's just phenomenal. Um, there are a couple of good books that have stood out in terms of it's just talking about like entrepreneurship in general. Outside of the traditional like suspects like zero to one, etc., I would say rework. Uh, rework is about like a counterintuitive way to build a business, which has been pretty interesting. And then outside of that, uh, some of my favorite books have been Mastery of Love, which is about like sort of self-happiness and not depending upon others for your happiness. That's been like super helpful. And uh, this is hard. Let me, let me think. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with these. 
Very cool. I'll have to check those books out. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, uh, PG Paul Graham's essays are just outstanding and really just a gold mine of really valuable info, not just about startups, but about work and life in general. So can definitely recommend those. So Pratik, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself before you entered college? Would you change anything about your path thus far? <laughs> you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? So I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, yes and no. I think I, my first instinct would be to say like, you know, I should have chilled out freshman summer, done something more interesting, but I ended up working at a hedge fund, which sort of like got me interested in fintech. So this wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have done that. What I, what I would have changed is I would have ended up maybe majoring in politics or so instead of and minoring in computer science, just because, you know, uh, I think like some of the most interesting and most helpful classes I've taken have been like my social science and humanities ones. Because like growing up in India, I never had an opportunity to, you know, write papers. And this sounds stupid, but I really love writing. I really loved writing papers in college, even though they were painful, because I think it really forced me to think about, you know, like A, critically think. Second, really like understand a problem space really well. And third, like really become like a subject matter expertise on a specific topic because of like developing arguments around that. So just being able to take more humanities courses that would able allow me to write papers would be the one thing I would do. Gotcha. So let's actually fast forward to 60 years from now. What do you hope to have accomplished or done in the course of your lifetime? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I definitely want to, I think one of my primary goals has been to help improve the socioeconomic conditions in India. Growing up in India, I think one of the things that really got me riled up was just like the socioeconomic disparity. And knowing that, you know, I'm very grateful for where I am. And I realized that I was able to come here because of a lot of opportunities that were afforded to me that are not accessible to the majority of people. And I think that's a very unfair way of structuring society. And I think the reason, one of the big reasons that I'm so passionate about Green Tag is because I think this is a way of providing financial freedom to a lot of people in, in, in the continent. And I definitely want to take that step further and help people get access to opportunities and, you know, just live their best lives. That's awesome, man. It's really cool to speak with someone who's so aligned with the mission of the company that they're trying to start. So... Last but not least, where is the best place for our listeners to find you, Pratik? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I would say LinkedIn would be best or even Twitter. I don't check Twitter that often, but I feel like Twitter is probably the best place to communicate. Yep. Noted. And we will link those in the show notes. Pratik, thanks so much for your time. Really excited to continue following the progress of Green Tiger. And I will definitely be rooting for you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Ashton. It was great catching up. This has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's, W-O-R-T-H dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends or leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.